knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, everyone. Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast on a beautiful October day. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but I can tell you today I should be out bird hunting. (laughs) And here I am working once again. Cry me a river. I hope you guys really appreciate this. Hey, I have some uh, corrections from some previous broadcasts, and we always enjoy those, keeping everyone straight, especially me. And this one is from John, and he writes, to whom it may concern, I suspect that's me, (laughs) MPBR, maximum point blank range, is contingent upon the game's vital radius of four, six inches, and the bullet's design, and this determines the bullet's not you, your rifle, or the cartridge, maximum range. So, uh, he's got it right. But he goes on. Let's keep reading. Your skills, the rifle, the cartridge may exceed the capabilities of the bullet's design. Oh, I'm not so sure I'm buying in on this one. Let's keep reading, see if we can figure it out. The main impediment to an adequate wound channel is bone in front of the vitals and inadequate bullet cohesion design because the bullet has to withstand its own spin while mushrooming, literally spinning like a boat propeller, and its velocity while penetrating through various impact densities and mass of the game. Hide, muscle, bone, sinew, that sort of thing. High BC hunting examples ELDX bullets, Game Kings, and the like, or match cup and, crab, cup and draw bullets are vastly inferior to bonded, partitioned, or solid core bullets because their exterior ballistics far surpass their terminal ballistic performance. A modern hunting bullet has balanced ballistics capable of maximizing maximum point-blank range performance. The two companies that figured this out years ago were Nosler and Barnes. All right, John has good information here uh, with a little bit of bias, I think. But what he is doing is he's combining bullet construction for terminal performance as well as exterior ballistic performance. And that's probably a pretty good 
idea because too often we, and me especially, talk about ballistic performance, trajectories and wind deflection and all that sort of thing, which is uh, a product of the BC of the bullet. But as I've said in the past, and John's definitely saying here, that doesn't mean a heck of a lot if the terminal performance of that bullet is not up to the game that you're shooting. So, yes, you do need to consider the construction of the bullet as far as how it's going to perform once it strikes the game, as well as its BC, its aerodynamic efficiency. Tie all of that together. I don't agree, I think, with with some of what John is implying here is that Certain bullets like the ELDX or the Sierra Game Kings and the like are not adequate for some kinds of hunting and some game animals because they certainly are. People have been taking all sorts of game with cup and draw bullets or as I call them cup and core bullets for decades and decades. I mean, those were the standard bullets of the 20th century until, well, really until John Nosler came out with the partition bullet in 1948. So they can work, but certainly they do not hold together as well as the bonded uh, and solid core bullets like the Barnes X and such. So, yeah, consider that any hunter does need to consider his terminal ballistics as well as his exterior ballistic performance and to figure all that stuff out. And I guess that's why we have so many different bullets for so many different cartridges, for so many different rifles from so many different manufacturers. It's always a study. All right. Good one, John. Thanks for making us think. Now, this is someone called Peanut Butter. Peanut Butter writes, I'm sure other people have already said this, but you were just a little bit off on your timing, only by a year, because I remember correctly, the Great War, this is World War One, started in 1914 and ended in 1918. But that's a small gripe, and this is a hunting channel, so I shouldn't expect everyone to be a historian, especially not me. <laughs> Thank you, Peanut Butter. Uh, with my rifle scope and the ammunition I have, I hope I can shoot out to 400 and 500 yards ethically. Now, what Peanut Butter is referencing here is a comment I made on one of my YouTube's uh, podcast or somewhere. I don't even remember where, but it was about a cartridge that appeared for the first time in 1915. And I say, that's getting pretty old. That predates World War One, And he's straightening me out here. World War One started in 1914. But I was coming from the American perspective. Our entrance into World War One wasn't until 1917, which is why I said this particular cartridge, and I think it was the 250-3000 Savage, came out in 1915, predated World War One. Okay, but I appreciate the folks who nail me down on this stuff. I mean, if we're going to say it, we might as well get it right. All right, so let's see. This is Mark, and oh my goodness, Mark is writing me an epistle here. <laughs> the epistle according to Mark. Let's just see what he has to say. <clears throat> I love your channel. Boy, he's getting off on the right foot, isn't he? Hey, just your voice is worth listening to. Oh boy, I wish my wife would agree to that sometimes. <laughs> Uh, anyway, back with what Mark has to say. I'd like to offer food for thought on good enough. Oh, this is in reference to me saying something was good enough. Whether you're target shooting for competition or hunting, you should do whatever is reasonable to get the most accurate shot unless you have a time machine. Why? Well, because you don't have the ability to know under what conditions each shot will fall. Hmm, that's a good point. To help explain... 
Let's say you have a rifle that consistently shoots one MOA out to 100 yards. Well, if it's one MOA at 100 yards, it's one MOA at 300 yards because MOA is an angle. It keeps opening up as you go down range. So uh, you've got a one MOA rifle. You know the rifle is that accurate because you've shot hundreds of thousands of rounds and you consistently get a one-inch group, that's one MOA, at 100 yards. Well, that doesn't mean that every one of those hundred or thousand shots was within a half inch of your aim point. It just means most of them are. Yeah. I'm not sure if I agree with that. I mean, if you've got a one MOA rifle ammunition bullet combination that means it should always drop everything into an inch at 100 yards two inches at 200 yards three inches at 300 yards that's a minute of angle it's actually a tiny bit more than that but we're not going to quibble oh wait a minute we probably should because that's going back to good enough <laughs> uh any rate what uh, mark is getting at here is that i made some comments for answering a question from someone who asked why so many people were fine-tuning their target loads and uh, not necessarily their hunting loads. And I said, well, that's because a hunting bullet needs to strike a pretty good-sized animal. And usually, you're thinking deer hunting. You've got an 8 to 10-inch vital zone in the chest. So you don't need a quarter MOA rifle to do that at deer hunting distances. I mean, if you can keep all your bullets in a 4-inch circle at 400 yards, good grief. That's good enough. But Mark says, no, it's not good enough. And uh, let's see why he's uh, advocating for not good enough here. I think he's hinting at it with this, most of them are. So, yeah, I don't know that I want to read all of this, but I want to get the gist of it here. And he's talking about consistency and the shooter's ability to shoot one MOA. Yeah, your rifle might be shooting that well, but what if you pull a little bit left or right, he's talking about. And up and down and misjudging the distance a little bit. All these things are going to change that little group size. So you're excited. Your heart's beating. I guess I get what you're drifting at here, Mark. You're making a good point. Um, just because your rifle shoots extremely accurately does not mean that you will. So the more accurate your rifle, the more you can be a little bit inaccurate and still be within the vital zone. That seems to be what he's hitting at here. Yeah, you know, if you pull it an inch and a half to the right, and then you also shoot, misjudge your range, and you miss by a couple of inches low, and it all adds up. So, yes, the more accurate your rifle, the better you're going to be in the field. That's certainly a valid point, Mark. I think, uh, even though I didn't read all of your, your pistol here, <laughs> that's pretty good stuff. You do have to consider how accurately you can shoot in addition to having an accurate rifle. I still maintain that a one MOA rifle is accurate enough, but I get your point. If you've got a rifle that consistently puts all of its shots half MOA, and then you screw up by pulling your shot a little bit or the wind blows a little bit more than you predicted, et cetera, et cetera. It's all going to help add up to a tighter group on your target. And yes, we definitely want to shoot precisely at game. So good point, Mark. I just don't think that hunters should freak out about not having a rifle that will group half MOA. I really don't think it's absolutely necessary. And I've proven that myself over the years by hunting successfully with rifles that shot one, two, as much as one and a half minute of angle precision. Um, a lot of people would just freak out and think, oh my goodness, one and a half. But gosh, we don't have to go back 30 years and one and a half inch MOA in a factory rifle was pretty rare. Um, and we still got our game. 
um, back in the 40s and 50s, guys were shooting out to four, five, even 600 yards sometimes without rangefinders and without quarter MOA precision rifles and getting their game. So can be done, but never wrong to try to be more precise. So more power to you, Mark. Thanks for reminding of that. I think it behooves all of us to get a rifle and a bullet and a load and train to shoot as precisely as possible. That's never a bad idea. All right, here are some questions the team has pulled up for me. Fred asks, do they ever use shotgun slugs in Africa? Boy, I haven't uh, talked to all the Africans, but I I imagine they do. I mean, why not? Um, It certainly isn't extremely popular. You rarely hear about it. I don't know that I've ever heard about it other than in the early days. And I'm talking way early when they were still shooting muzzleloaders. They would often use not just 12 gauges, but 10 gauges and eight gauges, six gauges, and four gauges, and I even think some two-gauge shotguns for elephant hunting. And uh, pretty big size for hippo and and giraffe and a lot of those big animals. They didn't have the high velocity we have now with rifle cartridges, so they had to make up for it with bigger and bigger bullets, heavy lead. So there's certainly a, a long history of shotgun slug use in Africa. But these days... In America, we have a lot of shotgun slugs because not only were we using those historically before modern rifles came along, but then a lot of state fish and game agencies in some of the more crowded eastern states decided that shotgun slugs didn't shoot as far as rifle bullets. Therefore, they might be more safe. I think that's been discounted quite a bit with some studies on ricochet, but that's why shotgun slugs are more popular in the USA. It's not because people think it's a superior choice. It's just kind of considered a safety issue in some jurisdictions. Hey, the RSO store has finally launched and you can get 15% off everything if you subscribe to RSO TV. So just check on the link here below and RSO TV, $5 a month. And not only do you get to watch all of our programming ad free, plus some things you don't see on the commercial channels, but you also get 15% off on all the goodies at Ron Spomer's Outdoor Store. Love to have you. All right, Stewie. Stewie is wondering, does powder burn rate change recoil? Is there a difference between a case with a slow burn powder versus a case with fast burn? I would say technically there might be a tiny, tiny amount. Realistically, I don't think you can measure it. You certainly can't feel it. Yeah, the idea with a slow burn powder is that you reach maximum pressure, maximum chamber pressure. Further down the barrel, it takes microseconds longer for this to happen, but once that bullet leaves and the jet gases come back at you and all of the ejecta heads out the barrel, you've got your standard. For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. The equal reaction does not kill you the way the bullet kills your deer because you've got five, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 pound rifle to absorb a lot of that energy. And you spread it out over a wider area because of the buttstock and the comb of the rifle and all of that stuff. So... That's why you don't get knocked out or shot dead (laughs) at the end of the opposite reaction. But the powder burning rate is not going to make a difference. Okay, Nate asks, could you make a recommendation on how to keep a lightweight sporter barrel cool when sighting in with a new scope? 
Well, sure I can, Nate. The easiest way is to just wait. Time is your friend. So just wait for that barrel to cool. Now, if you're in a hurry, as I always was when I was younger than 40, (laughs) probably even 50, you could speed things along by bringing along a common terry cloth bath towel or just a hand towel and draping it across your barrel and pouring some water on it evaporative cooling that will help cool it down more quickly some guys will go so far as to get a hose and run some icy water down the barrel another way to do it and now you're worried about rust well it's so hot that it evaporates quickly and then you sort of clean an oil after you're done but that is a common way to do it and other guys will get a blower and i think they even have some commercial blowers for target shooters doing a lot of range work like this where you put a hose in the action or the muzzle and you blow through it some cool air even if it's just ambient temperature air that helps cool your barrel down And then, of course, you can set your gun in the shade. I've noticed that if I shoot and I've got a hot barrel and I leave it sitting out in the full sunlight, that certainly doesn't speed things up for cooling. So I at least will set it in the shade, leave the action open so you get airflow through that baby. Those are the best ones, but I'll bet you there are some other shooters out there who've got some tricks. So if you've got some neat tricks for cooling your barrel, send them in. We'd love to hear it and we will share them on our next episode. All right, George asks a question. What are your thoughts on the 50 Beowulf? Not much. I do not think about the 50 Beowulf. I just don't pay that much attention to it. Now, folks who are really interested in a big 50 caliber in a uh, in a fairly short cartridge uh, that would fit in an AR-15 platform, I think that's what the Beowulf is for. So if you're into that or have a need for it, you would be interested in it. But I just haven't paid that much attention to it, guys. Uh, sorry, I'm just uh, a lot more interested in your standard hunting cartridges and standard rifles. This really super short stuff. I mean, I'm excited about things like the Grendel and some of the shorter ones in the AR-15. I think they've done some really good designs there. And I've shot the uh, 458 Bushmaster. Uh, the SOCOM is a little bit better than that, many people tell me, but I've just not really dived into those. Maybe I should in the future, but boy, for now, I've got all I can handle with all the standard cartridges that I'm working with. So it might be a while till I get into the Beowulf, but I do like the title. I like that name. Okay, Joel's question. How do they measure the exact chamber pressure on a rifle? Ah, strain gauges, um, electric signals. Uh, They used to use copper crusher style. So they put these instruments on the chamber, somewhere on the chamber of the barrel, forward, a little bit back. With the copper crusher, they had to actually drill a hole in there and they put a little copper inside of it and clamped it down and they would shoot and measure the crush of that copper pellet, as I understand it. Uh, obviously you do that and you've kind of ruined the barrel because you got a hole in it afterwards. So they came up with this piezoelectric system that actually tapes to the outside of the barrel and it can measure it with a strain gauge to see how much the metal strained. You know, it's pretty high tech stuff that they're working with here, but 
that's how they do it. Prior to that, I think there was one other way. I can't remember what the heck the older, older way was. But And there are also different places to measure it. You know, you can measure it a little bit further forward on the chamber and further back and all. And that changes the readings to a degree. So it's not quite as simple as it's all the same as long as you tape that strain gauge on there. Certain ways that they measure that stuff. And that's why you'll see different pressure ratings for cup copper units of pressure versus the piezoelectric strain gauge stuff that SAMI uses. And then I think the European system uh, and their SAMI equivalent over there is CIP. I forget what it stands for, something probably in French that I can't pronounce. So we'll go with SIP, CIP. I think they use a slightly different measuring technique and get slightly different pressures too. But it's all done to make sure that cartridges are loaded to safe pressures for every rifle. Now, Mad Dog has a question. Mad Dog wonders, Ron, if you could only purchase one reloading book, what would it be and why? Hmm, that is a good one, Mad Dog. First of all, I wouldn't. <laughs> it's just too much good information in these different hand-loading manuals. And each one of them have a little bit of something the other one doesn't. And they're all pretty darn good. But, you know, I'm really getting to like the Spear Manual. They have a lot of extra information in there. For instance, they will list the SAMI spec and sometimes even the SIP numbers for the pressures that we just talked about. So you'll have your chamber pressure for a cartridge. And I think they put the twist rate in there. And then they have lots of little comments about the history or who made it first and how it ranks. And I mean, just a lot of fun stuff as well as the recipes uh, for various loads. So that is a good one. I really like the spear. I've always liked Sierras because they've got a lot of detailed information on exterior ballistics in the back. So that one's worth reading for a lot of more scientific detailed stuff. And gosh, I mean, a, a standard for me, Hornady and Nosler, they've got good stuff. And they're using different bullets and some of them will be a little hotter than others. It's always interesting to make those comparisons. You look up some some loads and the top speed in one manual will be 100 feet per second faster than the next one. And you wonder why. And you look at the loads and the pressures and the powders and everything. You go, I don't get it. And then you discover, well, maybe they had a different barrel that was a little tighter or a little looser. The chamber maybe was a little bit looser. So there's more room for expansion. It reduces the pressures. So it helps you learn things by making these comparisons. So definitely don't purchase just one hand loading manual. Mr. Callahan, B. Callahan asks, what do you think of Weatherby calibers? Well, the calibers are pretty much the same as every other cartridge caliber in that caliber. Caliber meaning diameter of the bullet. And I know what you are meaning here, Mr. Callahan. You mean Weatherby cartridges. Um, and the Weatherby cartridges, I, I like them. They're interesting. And I commend Roy Weatherby for cranking those out because he started the speed craze. You know, we were doing some fairly fast cartridges before he came along. Uh, most famously, the uh, 270 Winchester, perhaps. Um, they really, I think the only fast 30 at the time was the 300 uh, H&H Magnum. And he exceeded that long before Winchester came along with the more popular 300 Winchester Magnum or Remington with the 7mm Remington Magnum or any of the mid to late 20th century Magnums. Weatherby was well ahead of the curve. So give him credit for starting this all. 
So what he essentially did was he took a large capacity case, the 375 H&H, and he looked at it and said, you know, this is not taking full advantage of its potential for powder capacity. The uh, walls angle in a little bit more than they need to. And the slope of the shoulders a little uh, sloped more than it needs to be. It could be flatter. So let's just change those things. So let's open them up. More of a straight wall. We've gained some powder capacity. Let's push that shoulder forward and flatten it out a little bit. 30, 35, 40 degrees. I don't know exactly what he used on all of them, but that was the basic idea. And that way you had the same length of case, but you had more powder capacity. And then you just start necking it up and down for whatever load you want. So he set new standards for speed in the 270 Weatherby Magnum and the 300 Weatherby Magnum and the 7 Weatherby Magnum and the 257 Weatherby Magnum. He had a 224. He had a 220 rocket for a while. That didn't go anywhere. But gosh, he just took pretty much every caliber and made it faster than the competition. So that is cool. Now, his pressures were high for the day, but the rifles could handle it. The steels could handle it, and they still can. So he also took advantage of modern pressures. And he was able to do that because he wasn't having to worry about older rifles having been built back in the day when they weren't as strong. And most famously, the 4570 government cartridge. I mean, that thing is really underloaded because it initially came out in this weak trapdoor Springfield action that just could not take any pressure. Well, you put it in a modern action, a really strong one like the Ruger number one, and oh my goodness, you can get a lot more performance out of that cartridge. Well, Roy starts from scratch, chambers everything for his cartridges in fully modern steel actions with his really, really strong uh, nine lug bolt action. And he was able to push those pressures safely up to 65,000 PSI, and that also increased his velocity. So, I think Weatherby calibers are great. The only fly in the ointment is that it's a little more difficult to find ammunition and it's more expensive because of that. Obviously, Weatherby offers it and a few of the more popular ones like 270 and 300, 257 are sometimes loaded by other brands like Federal or Nosler or Norma companies like that, but it's never as ubiquitous as something like a 308 or 30-06 or even a 300 Win Mag or 7 Rem Mag. So those are the decisions you, you need to make when you're shopping or thinking about getting a cartridge. Do you want to go 200, 300 feet per second faster than everyone else for that particular caliber? Then you can go with a Weatherby if you want to pay the price. But yeah, if you like to be the fastest dog on the block, Weatherby's a pretty good option. Oh, and one more thing. He didn't just work with that 375 belted Magnum case. He went up to the big fat ones like the 404 Jeffrey is a common one that's used with a larger diameter head to start with. And those are some of his bigger Magnums like the 460 Weatherby Magnum and the 378, some of those monsters. They really increased the size of the uh, cartridge and powder capacity. But then again, you had to make a bigger rifle to handle them. Heavier rifle, bigger bolt face and all that good stuff. But boy, they're out there. Good old Weatherby knows how to make velocity count. And that looks like all of the questions for this episode. So, hey, I want to thank you guys for sending in some corrections. World War One. I'm never going to forget that one again. <laughs> and uh, 
and MOA and shooting precisely. Those are some really good points made there. So guys, thank you for listening. Thanks for your help in making all of this stuff right. And until next time, enjoy your shooting, enjoy your hunting, hunt honest and shoot straight and tune in next time to Ron Spomer Outdoor Podcasts. country rules were not created by man don't miss wild country wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m eastern presented by primos speak the language waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment oh that's awesome don't miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment